Hello, I'm Linda Huey, and this is Meet the Doctors, the show that lets you hear what doctors have to say about their lives, their work, their passions, and what they foresee for the future. Today's guest is healthcare researcher Fola May, who has a medical degree, a PhD, and a master's degree in philosophy. This episode of Meet the Doctors is brought to you by Complete PT Pool and Land Physical Therapy. Whether you're trying to prevent knee surgery or recovering from shoulder, hip, or back pain, Complete PT offers you the most advanced pool therapy in combination with traditional land therapy. You don't need to know how to swim or even get your hair wet. The 92-degree saltwater pool soothes joints and muscles and helps reduce pain immediately. Visit CompletePT.com. That's CompletePT.com. Now let's meet researcher Dr. Fola May. We're here today with Dr. Fola May from UCLA. She's a healthcare researcher at UCLA. Welcome to Meet the Doctors. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this oh, afternoon. It's so fun talking with you. <laughs> um, always. You have had such an illustrious career at Yale and Cambridge and Harvard, and we're going to get back to that. But the first time we spoke, we talked about your dad yeah. who immigrated from Nigeria. It's such an interesting story. Tell me that. Sure. So I actually draw a lot of inspiration from my father, I think mostly because he grew up with a very different upbringing and background than I did and has really been able to make a name for himself in medicine. And growing up with someone like that was just always energized by what he's accomplished. But he has a pretty interesting story. He grew up in, in Nigeria, which is a country in West Africa. He was raised by educators, my grandparents. So they are um, English professors, and they did a lot of their schooling in the UK, but raised their children in Nigeria in West Africa. And my father had an amazing opportunity when he was 18 years old to come to the United States to study. And this was at a time when, you know, people were really living the American dream. Mm -hmm. They were immigrating to the U.S., getting incredible education and developing trades in areas that maybe might not have been accessible in the countries that they were from. Where did he he go to school? He went to the University of Oregon Uh and he studied science. And even though he doesn't have medical professionals in his family, he decided that he would go to medical school. He went to the University of Illinois for medical school Mm -hmm. and did a lot of his training in Chicago. And eventually his story brought him out west where he and my mother started their family here in California. Where did he meet your mother? He met my mother in Chicago. They have an amazing story. Is she an American? My mother is American. She grew up in the South. Oh my goodness. Um, She actually comes from a very disadvantaged background, but is another example of someone who really saw a vision for what she wanted out of Mm -hmm. her life and has really, I think, been able to raise my brother and I very differently than what she had access to. So you were born and raised in LA, and did your father end up guiding you toward medicine? So I think he always wanted me to go into Mm -hmm. medicine, but for a while I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I liked science. Mm -hmm. I was always good in math and in science, but especially when I went to college, there were just so many things I was interested in. I have always loved international studies. I studied Spanish in in high school, and I studied Spanish in undergrad as well. So I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to do something that would allow me to do more international Mm -hmm. work. 
I have a passion for public health and public education. So I was trying to figure out how to fit that into my career. Eventually, I think my dad's genes won. (laughs) (laughs) And I slowly, it slowly became very clear to me that pre-med was the path that I wanted to take and was have, you know, over the last several years been able to have this incredible career where I've combined public health and clinical medicine to do work that educates people about cancer prevention, but also involves taking care of patients one-on-one. Wow, what a great combination of using your brain and using your interpersonal skills at the same time with your patients. Thank Um, you. How did you choose Yale for your undergraduate work? It was a dare, believe it or not. (laughs) Um, I'm a California-grown child Mm -hmm. through and through, lived on the West Coast my entire life, and um, I have an uncle who lives on the eastern side of the United States, and right in the time that I was 16 years old, he dared me to apply to schools on the East Coast. Now, is this, a, is this an American uncle or a Nigerian uncle? This is a Nigerian-American uncle. Okay. He lives in Atlanta, actually. Okay. And I think his perspective at the time was, you Californian kids, you never leave California, you growing up in the promised land, you've got to see something else. And I remember as a high schooler thinking he was a little crazy for, for challenging <laughs> me to do so. I had always had my eyes set on Stanford, and that was as far as I was going to go. But he dared me to apply, and I never say no to a dare. So it caused me to look into a bunch of schools on the East Coast. And actually, my first time visiting the East Coast and spending a significant period of time in New York and in Connecticut was to visit Yale. I instantly fell in love with it. Was it the campus, the the people, everything? I loved the way the campus was set up. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a college system where everyone has a home base, but you still have the benefits of a large campus. Mm -hmm. I loved that it was in a college town and the diversity of the students spoke to me. And it was very different than anything I've ever seen on the West Coast. So it became very clear to me once I visited Yale that that's where I wanted to go. And then, of course, all of my efforts shifted from, you know, trying to get into Stanford to trying to get into Yale. And I feel very fortunate that I had an opportunity to spend four years there. You made it in. (laughs) But then after those four years, you took a break before med school to go to the University of Cambridge in England to earn a master's of philosophy degree. How did that fit into your plan? Yes. So that wasn't actually part of the plan, but it was one of these serendipitous opportunities that changed the course of my career. So when I was an undergrad, I started to do work in global health. And what does that mean? Yeah. So global health is the practice of improving health equity or access to care in parts of the world that have poor access. So for example, people who try to improve healthcare services in sub-Saharan Africa, Mm -hmm. parts of Asia, India, parts of South America, where there aren't as many providers for the number of patients and where there aren't as many, as much access to medications and, and surgical or other services. So what is it that you do that that is called global health? Sure. Uh, So it's a broad definition, and I've had different roles in doing global health and global medicine over the course of my career. I was exposed to it actually very early, and I like to say that I was born into global Mm, health because, again, going back to my father, he was an individual that once he did establish his, his career here as a surgeon in the United States, he always felt a calling to give back to his community in in West Africa. So he has been engaged in doing work in West Africa around medical missions where teams of doctors, usually from North America, have traveled to West Africa to, to deliver services in kind to the communities there that don't have access to care. 
He's been doing this since the, I think the late eighties or so. And I started trailing him on some mm. of these trips now and then. Even and when you were a child? Even when I was a child and my whole family would go, my wow. mom would go, my brother and I would go. But it was around the time that I made the transition from high school to college that I understood what he was really providing in these communities mm-hmm. and that he was really giving a lot of these people their only chance at life. Yeah. So many scenarios where surgical services were not at all available. So he and his partners formed an organization called the Association of Nigerian Physicians in the Americas, and AMPA, and they would go into very remote parts of West Africa, and they would do surgical care, and they would provide um, clinical medical care even outside of the OR for patients who were in need. Uh, I how, did, to, how did they do that? Um, they would literally construct operating rooms. Yeah, A lot of the times they are leaning on the few medical providers and the few surgeons and nurses who are in the area. Mm-hmm. And, and it also comes from experience of having either partnerships in the area or family in the area that help get them connectedness to the site. But they literally are flying in, creating health centers and providing as much care they can in a one, two, three week period. That must be an amazing time. What do you remember as a child? What were your memories of it? I have pretty vivid memories. I, I remember the smells. I remember very vividly the long lines of people. And most distinctly, I remember arriving the first day when we would set up camp and meet with the locals, and no one was really there. But by the second day, when news had hit the village that there were doctors from America providing free medical care, just seeing the long lines of men, women, children just waiting to be seen. And some of them had visible medical problems that you could see, just waiting in line, maybe large tumors that were growing on their face or ailments, Mm. a problem with one of their limbs or an amputation that needed attention. Others, they looked well, uh, so it was always curious as to what they were coming to, to talk to us about. And the chief complaints or the medical complaints um, ranged quite broadly. A lot of people were there with tumors or growths that they wanted to see if we could remove. A lot of them were bringing sick children mm-hmm. that just couldn't be addressed with the current access they had to medical care. And of course, at that time, I was a high school student, so there's very little that I can do even as a college student. But I would go and I would run um, materials back and forth between the different clinical right. spaces, and I'd shadow my father in the operating room if they were doing uh, some sort of surgery. They did a lot of hernia repairs and a lot of abdominal surgeries for people who had grown masses or tumors that needed to be removed. So you got to see all of that up close. Up close. Mm-hmm. And I think what I learned very early in these experiences is that many times, unfortunately, we're born into our health situation. Mm -hmm. So we are very fortunate in the United States that we have these incredible pillars of healthcare and these places that we can go to. And even individuals who can't necessarily afford them, the technology's here. The problem in a lot of these other regions, however, is that there's nothing. And even when they travel to the the most urban parts of their country, there's very little technology, especially mm-hmm. back in the in the 1980s, in the early 1990s. So that struck me. And I think it's part of the reason why in the end I decided to reach back and do the pre-med course courses to prepare myself for medical school. 
the the journey to Cambridge was part of this as well. Yes. So yes, let's talk about that. I had had this exposure to global health, to providing medical services in remote parts of the world, but I had never studied it formally. And And the people who had studied it formally had never seen what you had seen, I'm guessing. Exactly. And it was kind of a newer field at this time, this idea of international health or global health. So the reason why I took that opportunity to go to Cambridge for a year was because I wanted to do a master's in epidemiology. And they had a program there that would allow me to learn those skills of doing epidemiological studies. And what is epidemiology? Epidemiology is the study of health and Mm -hmm. the distribution of disease. Yeah. So as an epidemiologist, you study everything from how common diseases are in populations to how severe disease outcomes are in populations. Epidemiologists are the ones that tell us the number one, two, three cancers in the world. And they're the ones that tell us when cancer rates are increasing or decreasing, for example. So it's a little bit of science, Mm -hmm. it's healthcare, and it's a lot of numbers and statistics. Demographics. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the demographics of healthcare. And I wanted to study that. And I wanted to study that from a global lens. So I had this amazing opportunity to go to the University of Cambridge and do a master's program there in epidemiology, where I would focus on healthcare from a global perspective. So not only looking at US-based systems, but also um, systems in the United Kingdom, and even looking at some of the systems in Sub-Saharan Africa. I'll bet you brought a lot to the table, and they were asking you questions during the course. (laughs) It actually ended up being a great program, because it consisted of people who had already done their medical training. And it also consisted of people like me who were pre-medical training. And we all came from different parts of the world. Mm, So we literally had people from Europe, the Americas. We had an individual from Sub-Saharan Africa who was in the program. We had people from Asia, Mm -hmm. all kind of in the same space, studying the same problem. So it was an an incredible place to learn. And then next came Harvard. Yes. Medical school. Tell us about that. Yes. So... As I mentioned, when I was at Yale, I did study pre-med, and I did actually end up applying to med school when I was at Yale, but the reason I was able to go to Cambridge is because I deferred or delayed my matriculation to Harvard Medical School by a year. You had already been accepted? I had already been accepted, Mm -hmm. and I I very uh, distinctly remember uh, the internal dilemma in my dorm room of trying to figure out how I was going to tell the dean of Harvard Med School (laughs) (laughs) that I was so grateful to be admitted but that I needed a year to pursue this master's in Cambridge first. Nonetheless, I eventually brought myself to write that email, and the, the dean at the time uh, granted me the opportunity to do the year in Cambridge and then start medical school the year later. He must have seen some value there. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know it's a pretty common thing to do, but I felt ah. very lucky at the time. So I came back from Cambridge. I had finished the master's program. I was super excited about public health, um, but I was just about to start this four-year program in clinical medicine, yeah, one-on-one patient-directed care. So that was a bit of a challenge, and that was a dif- a dif- definitely a shift for me. But I enjoyed looking at disease pathophysiology, so understanding how disease diseases impact the human body. So pathophysiology, when things go wrong exactly. with how the body functions. So in medical mm-hmm. school, we start by learning normal physiology. So mm-hmm. how does the heart work? How does it actually literally pump blood from your brain to your toes? Mm-hmm. How does the GI tract work? And how is it that when you bite and swallow food, it's processed so that you absorb the important nutrients and then 
put the others into waste or into your stool. And that's the GI tract. Yes. I think you once told me it's from the mouth to the butt. We say we do everything <laughs> from the mouth to the anus. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. and that was actually my first exposure to GI. And, and later, you know, that eventually is what I end up going into. At the time, I wasn't sure. But in medical school, we start by learning the normal physiology, and then we do pathophysiology, which is when things are abnormal. So when an individual has a heart attack or has lung disease or has a gastrointestinal disease, how that impacts the body and their health outcomes. And that was a very different perspective mm-hmm. because I had just spent a year looking very globally at disease and how disease impacts populations. And now I was very narrowly looking at disease and how you can address the individual patient. At the time, I was struggling with how I was going to combine this interest with population science and population health with one-on-one patient care. Yeah. So I eventually decided to go into internal medicine and had to swing back later in my career to combining the two, which is more of what I do now. But at the time, I was really just... Um, immersing myself and learning medicine and what it's like to take care of patients and deliver quality care. And then you went on to do your internship and residency in internal medicine, as you just said, at Massachusetts General Hospital. And you stuck around a bit afterwards too. Yes. So I did my training in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, which is in Boston. I was very happy to be able to stay in Boston for my training. And I stayed at Mass General Hospital for one additional year where I worked as a hospitalist, which is a general internist that takes care of patients that are hospitalized. So I did And that's that called a hospitalist. It's called a hospitalist. Fairly it's, new phrase, it's, isn't it? Fairly it's new a word? fairly new type of medicine where mm-hmm. instead of focusing on outpatient care, so seeing patients in a clinic, you're specifically only care for for patients that are in the hospital. And this is a bit of a shift we've Mm -hmm. had in medicine where, you know, 20 years ago, you'd have a primary care doctor. And if you got admitted and went to the hospital, your primary care doctor would see you in the hospital. That model is less common now. More typically, what we're seeing is a bit of a hybrid where some of the primary care doctors are venturing into the hospital to see their patients when they're hospitalized. But very commonly, a hospitalist, which is a hospital medicine mm-hmm. doctor, mm-hmm. will be taking care of you when you're in the hospital. And do most of these primary care doctors know the people, the hospitalists yes. that are in there? And there's very okay. frequently communication between the hospitalist and the primary care doctor to make sure that everyone's on the same page with the treatment plan. Yeah, that's so important. Yes, exactly. So I did that for a year. Uh, but all the meanwhile, knew that I wanted to do a specialty and by this time had studied gastroenterology and medical school and had the opportunity to take care of patients with gastroenterology while I was doing my internal medicine training. How is gastroenterology different from just a GI tract? Yes. So gastroenterologists are internal medicine doctors that have dedicated additional time to doing training of understanding diseases that impact the GI tract. So after internal medicine training, we spend three additional years Mm learning how to take care of patients that have problems with digestion, inflammatory problems with their GI tract, problems swallowing, problems passing stool. Mm -hmm. And during that training as well, we learn how to do endoscopy. So that's where we learn how to do the upper endoscopy, which is where we take a long flexible tube at the camera with a camera at the end to examine the esophagus and stomach through the mouth. Mm -hmm. And then we also learn how to do colonoscopies, which is where we do interventions through the behind, (laughs) also using a long flexible tube with a camera at the end. And the colonoscopies 
are mostly done to do cancer screening. Right. So we're mostly looking for polyps that have the potential to transform into colon cancers. But we do colonoscopies for other diagnostic reasons as well. So a polyp is just like a little growth that yes. you can see through the camera. I like to describe them as little pimples. <laughs> they, they just kind of pop up. They're in the colon. Uh, they typically are benign, meaning that they're yeah. not going to cause any problems. But every once in a while and over time, they can develop into cancerous polyps and grow out of control, grow out of the colon and spread into other parts of the body. And that's where we get into trouble. That's what you're looking for when you do the colonoscopy. Exactly. Yeah. Stay tuned for more from Dr. May after this. If you're in the market for a bike, you want to buy your bike from a shop that has great service. Bicycles need to be serviced and maintained on a regular basis for safety. You want a relationship you can count on with the shop where you buy your bike. Helen's cares as much about servicing your bike and keeping you safe as it does about the sale of a new bike. Their tune-up packages and excellent repair service will keep your bike in perfect working order. Go to HelenCycles.com. That's HelenCycles.com. We're back with Dr. Folamay. In 2011, you came to UCLA for your fellowship in gastroenterology. Why'd you come back to LA? Home sweet family. home. Family. <laughs> home sweet home and family. I remember when I left California in 1998, I'm aging myself, to go to college, my mom looked at me and said, you'll be back, right? <laughs> and I think at the time I was thinking, yep, four years at Yale and I'll be right back here. It took me a little bit longer than that to yeah, come back, yeah. but I was long overdue to coming back to California, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of the UCLA faculty now, where I'm close to my family, experiencing this beautiful weather, and continuing to practice medicine. Yeah. And at the same time that you were doing your fellowship, you also earned a PhD in health policy and management. That seems like a lot to do at the same time. <laughs> How did you make that work? It was an extraordinary experience. It was tough, but I'm happy I did it. And this stems back to that desire I had to bridge my interest with public health and population-based science with clinical medicine. UCLA has this incredible program called the STAR program. Mm -hmm. And in the STAR program, you can pursue a PhD in either basic science or public health while you're doing the end of your clinical training. So when I signed up for my gastroenterology fellowship, which is a three-year program, yeah. I also had the opportunity to enroll in the PhD program at the School of Public Health at UCLA. It allowed me to get back to my roots mm -hmm. in doing epidemiology. Mm -hmm. It allowed me to understand how cancer impacts individuals and also populations of people. And it really set me up to have this career that I have now as a population health scientist that works on cancer prevention control, particularly in colon cancer. Goodness, that was a good way of taking your loves for various information and bringing them all back together. Yeah. So that was what you'd want to do in the first place. You weren't sure how it was going to happen, but it certainly did. And what I will say, one of the things that I've learned over and over in my career is that when you feel passionate about something and when you really want it to happen for yourself, you have to silence all the naysayers mm -hmm. and you have to go with your gut. Because I can tell you countless times, even reaching back to high school, when individuals looked at me and said, that's not possible. And that in that moment became my exact mission to make that possible. <laughs> and there aren't that many people who are able to do science and clinical medicine and public health and global health. 
but I feel very fortunate to be sitting in a position right now doing exactly what people told me I could not do. And I think it's, it's essential for young women to see now mm-hmm. that we can do everything that the men can do. Sometimes we can do it better and that we can demand. Yeah. We, are, we are in positions where we have skill sets and we have something to offer. And it's, I, I love teaching my mentees and the students that I interact with that they should shoot high and go for those goals. Yeah. Now, I know that you wrote your thesis looking at the black-white disparities in colorectal cancer incidents, the screening and the outcomes, because you found some really interesting things. Yeah. I was embarrassed to realize early in my GI fellowship training that there were huge disparities or differences in healthcare that I was not made aware of when I was going through my clinical training. So I had heard that blacks were more likely to get obesity Mm -hmm. or to get diabetes. Mm -hmm. I knew that in particular black men were at high risk for heart disease. But I had never heard, I think, in my training that colon cancer was higher in blacks overall and highest in black men. Mm -hmm. So as a young gastroenterologist who was trying to find a way in an area where I could have some impact and bring a new voice, it was natural for me to focus there. I also was impassioned to embrace work in that area because I have a family history of colon cancer in my and have learned that potentially my family member who developed colon cancer could have lived longer if there was more strategies to teach black men about prevention. Yeah. Colon cancer is a major killer. It's the second most common cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. How many people know that? People do not know no. this. Yeah. People hear about breast cancer. Yeah. They hear about prostate mm-hmm. cancer. They hear about lung cancer. But they don't realize that when we combine men and women, colon cancer is number two killer. Across the country. Across the country. Mm -hmm. So I usually start there. And then I also try to remind African Americans that they're at even higher risk for developing colon cancer than white Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanic Americans. Black men in particular have the highest risk of colon cancer, and they're unlikely to participate in screening. One of the coolest things about colon cancer is that we can prevent it. Yeah. There are a lot of cancers out there. There are hundreds of subtypes of cancers, but there are very few that we can actually prevent from happening. We prevent it by finding polyps in the colon early and taking them out before they have the opportunity to transform into cancer. So they always start as a polyp that is removable. They don't, they can't start as a cancer. It starts as a polyp. Okay. Most polyps will not become a cancer. Some will, however, Mm -hmm. and we don't know which ones will transform. So our strategy in this country is to detect polyps, all polyps, and take all of them out Mm -hmm. before any of them have the chance to transform. And as a prevention health specialist that focuses in colon cancer, my mission is to make sure that everybody is aware that this cancer is common, it's deadly, but we can prevent it. And there are many different ways that we can prevent it. So I never want to hear someone say that they just don't want to do the test because there's so many different ways to do it. Well, let's talk about some of the new ways you were telling me about. um, Colonoscopy is not the only way to detect colorectal cancer. So colonoscopy is the most common way. Mm -hmm. Colonoscopy allows us to, in the hospital and in a controlled setting with the assistance of conscious sedation or anesthesia, 
We can make a patient comfortable enough that we can use a long instrument with a camera and a light at the end to carefully inspect the lining of the colon. So I'm visually looking at the colon lining, and if I see a polyp, I can take it out. And it's a painless process to take those polyps out. And how far up? Are you going up just through the large intestine? We go up the whole large intestine. It's about five or six feet long. Yeah. And uh, the procedure takes about 30 minutes. And my goal as the colonoscopist is to take out all the polyps that I see. Mm -hmm. And that right now is the number one most popular way to screen. We think it's our best screening test because it allows us to visually inspect the colon and take out the polyps at the same time. But the reality is that we're learning more and more that there's always going to be a subset of the population that just won't do it. They're afraid of it. They're afraid of it. Mm -hmm. And some of them don't like how invasive it is. Other people don't like hospitals, so they just don't want to come to a hospital for any type of procedure. The other problem that we're seeing is that there are a lot of people who just don't understand how important it is. Mm -hmm. So what I want to emphasize is that colonoscopy is the most common way to screen for colon cancer, and it's great, but it's not for everyone. There are patients that tell me, Doc, I just don't feel comfortable with someone being in that part of my body. There are patients that say, I don't like going to hospitals, so you're never going to get me into an endoscopy unit. And there are also patients that just don't have the resources. So for a colonoscopy, you need to take a day off of work. Mm -hmm. You need to have someone escort you, which means that they need to be there during your procedure and to take you home afterwards because we've given you very strong medications and you cannot drive yourself home. So these are barriers that impact certain populations more than others. As you can imagine, low-income populations have more barriers. But there are also reasons that patients use to not get a colonoscopy. My response to that, though, is that there are other ways to screen. Okay, let's hear them. So what I remind people is that there are three tests that you can perform in the comfort of your own home. The most popular of this is the fecal immunochemical test or the FIT test. Fecal immunochemical test. Fecal immunochemical test. Okay, we let's call break it the that fit. down. Fecal is the feces. Fecal, yeah, so what it is, it's an immunochemistry test, which means that it's a laboratory test that takes the human stool and it is looking in particular for microscopic or small amounts of human blood in the stool. Ah. So the way that this works is that your doctor gives you the fit kit or the fecal immunochemical test. And at home, you deposit a stool sample into the toilet bowl, just like you're having a normal bowel movement. And the kit comes with instructions on how to collect a very small sample of that stool. You don't have to touch your stool. They give you a tool to do a small scraping. And you place that into a laboratory tube. Mm -hmm. You put the whole thing into a mailer. And then you mail the whole thing into the lab. You're right. That's easy at home. It's easy at home. It's little, it takes little, less than five minutes. Little courage to have to face the instructions. You have to look and, at your poop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but given that it can save your life, yes. I think it's worth it. Uh-huh. So, a lot of my patients who are anxious about colonoscopy uh, don't have the resources to take that day off, or just uh, hesitant about procedures in general, I remind them that we can do this fit kit at home. Now, just so that people understand, what happens on the laboratory side is that that fit kit arrives in the lab and we do some tests on it. And if it turns positive, meaning that the test is abnormal, Mm -hmm. it means that there are small amounts of blood in the stool. 
you can have blood in your stool and not see it. So you can have brown, oh, normal okay. looking stool with small amounts of blood in it. So the test is better than the naked eye. Yeah. If you have blood in your stool, though, it can be from a polyp and it can be from a cancer. Mm -hmm. So those patients that have the abnormal fit test, they need to have a colonoscopy. So then we can look in and see whether there is a cancer or a polyp causing that abnormal result. But that now they might have enough motivation to go do that. Exactly. Yeah. So it becomes yeah. a two-step process where most people are going to have a negative fit result and won't need our colonoscopy. And we can just focus on the population that has the positive result and needs the colonoscopy. And what percentage ends up with a positive result? It's you know somewhere that? between 5 and 8% mm -hmm. that I usually tell people um, will have a positive result and need a colonoscopy. And then out of those, how many are going to actually have cancer? So when you have an abnormal or positive fit test, one in 10 people will have a significant colon lesion that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. A lesion meaning an opening that probably is an a cancerous. An abnormality yeah. that's a, uh -huh. that could be cancerous. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we do take the positive results seriously. And a lot of the research that I do on in my team at the Cancer Center at UCLA actually focuses on that very population. So these are people who were hesitant about colonoscopy. Mm -hmm who had the positive fit result, and now we need to make sure that they get a colonoscopy. So finding ways to channel those individuals into endoscopy units so that they get timely care. Wow, you can really save some people with that particular test. But what else? You said there were a couple yeah. of things besides a fit test. So what we else? discussed the colonoscopy being the most common. The fit test is the second most common. Mm -hmm. There's a new test on the market called the ColoGuard or the Fit DNA test. It's I see that by, even on social media. It's on social yeah. media. There's commercials about it. It is a fit test that also includes a DNA probe. It mm -hmm. includes 11 DNA biomarkers. Okay. Uh, so what it's doing is it's bolstering the fit test by having the test look for other signs of cancer in the stool. So just like the FIT test, you are mailed a kit at home, you collect the stool sample and send it off to the lab, but this time the lab is checking for blood and cancer DNA. And the cancer DNA is DNA history from your family history, or there's actually yeah. DNA for cancer in your stool? That's a very good question. So when there is a cancer, or a high-risk polyp that's growing in the colon, it sheds cells into the stool. Okay. So it's the stool is constantly passing by it mm -hmm. and grabbing cells from it. And what this Cologuard test is doing is looking for abnormal cells that might be a sign of cancer. Wow. Yeah. And it's So it's a newer technology. Yeah, I've only started seeing it in the past maybe six months yeah. or so. It, we, we're still not quite sure how it compares to some of the technologies that are out there. Because this is a relatively new study, and there are only a few data on it. So I do have a little caution in how I recommend it. Mm. But I think with time, we'll have better information about how it performs. So for now, you go with the first two, colonoscopy still, and the FIT test. Yeah, I still recommend those two. There's also the, the CT scan or the CT colonography, which is the concept that you can have a CT or X-ray of your colon taken. And that X-ray will show polyps. So some patients who don't want to have a colonoscopy, they can go for the CT colonography. That's also an option. Now, and wait a minute. A CT scan, I'm used to seeing for like hips and backs yeah, and things exactly. so it catches bone. How is it catching soft tissue? Is there, um, are you using some kind of dye? It uses a special dye. Yeah. 
It also does require you to take a laxative to clear out the colon, yeah. just like you do for the colonoscopy. So patients who are trying to avoid that laxative, the CT colonography <laughs> is not the way for you to go. But it does avoid having to have the invasive procedure. Yeah. So you take, a, you take the laxative, you clean out the colon, you drink a special contrast that actually goes through your mouth and from your bottom. And that lights up the colon in the CT scanner or in the x-ray machine. Okay. And it can show deviations that are representative of a polyp. So the dye would go into a lesion. Exactly. Just like it does a a torn labrum. Exactly. It looks like a little outpouching. Yeah. Again, if the test is abnormal, you still need a colonoscopy. But some patients can avoid getting a colonoscopy if it it looks normal. We're ruling out the people that need colonoscopies. Exactly. So that's what these tests are useful for. And then the two new kids on the block that are kind of coming around is there's a a capsule, which is a smart pill (laughs) that you literally swallow. Mm -hmm. And it's got cameras on it. And it takes pictures of your colon all the way down. And, and it can remotely send them back to a computer? Those images are sent to a computer and an endoscopist like I sit in front of the computer and we read all the images and look for polyps. Oh my, have you been doing this already? We've already been doing it. It's actually FDA approved. It is only FDA approved, however, for patients who cannot get a colonoscopy oh. because we still think the colonoscopy is the superior study. It's better than nothing, they're saying. So but it's do better it. than nothing uh-huh. and the technology is improving. So wow. they're on, I think, the third generation of these smart pills or these capsule pills for screening. And I think they'll only get better. And the big one that's coming out or that we're working on is a blood test. Okay. So this is the concept that you can get your blood drawn. And if you've got a colon cancer growing in your colon, it would have shed Mm -hmm. cancer cells Mm -hmm. into your blood and the blood test itself would detect the cancer or the polyp. So it's very sensitive tested to be able to Catch yep. one cell that might be coming Well, through. that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. And that's why we are not too confident with the current blood test. But I think over time, as we do more studies and we do more science to improve those tests, that we can have a blood test to screen for cancer. And I think it's going to be a blood test. You don't even have to draw blood. It's going to be somehow reading it while you're still standing there. I, can like you an imagine? MRI. Can you imagine? Yeah. I'll be out of a job because everyone will be getting screened. But yeah. Okay, I want to talk about the research laboratory that you have named after you. How did that happen? So I am part of the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center at UCLA, and it is a multidisciplinary cancer center that focuses on all types of cancer from the brain all the way down. The particular group that I work in is Cancer Prevention Control Research. And in our group, we focus on preventive strategies to prevent cancers and also disparities. And what that means is that we try to make sure that regardless of your social economic background, mm-hmm. your racial or ethnic background, that you still have access to all the best care and the best screenings. So we do work everywhere from, uh, I do some work in the Veterans Affairs. We do work at UCLA Health. We also do work in federally qualified health centers, which are centers that service low-income and underinsured or uninsured individuals in Los Angeles County. So what would that be here? So there are several throughout, the, mm-hmm. throughout Los Angeles, and um, some of them are very small clinics that are freestanding. They uh, mostly yeah. provide primary care. Okay. But they do provide preventive services. And under the Affordable Care Act, they are given provisions from the U.S. government to take care of people who have no insurance at all or that have a very low-cost insurance types. 
So how do you get this information out to people that don't have insurance? They think, yeah. I, I don't want to go do all this stuff. Why should I do it? I don't have any money. I don't have any time. How do you get to them? How do you get the message out to and them? That's, and that's a lot of our challenge. So at our center, we partner with a lot of the federally qualified health centers that are interested in improving their colon cancer screening rates. Mm-hmm. So I alluded to earlier, we do a bad job of screening for colon cancer in this country. For a disease that's common, that's deadly, and that's preventable, one in three Americans is unscreened. That's amazing to me. Much They've never been screened. Never been screened. And these are much lower screening rates than we see for breast cancer, cervical Mm -hmm. cancer, other cancers that we screen for. So we've got a lot, a long way to go. You need to have a marathon. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, there's so many efforts. And 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 what I'll emphasize is that in in some of these health centers like the health federally qualified health centers, we see the lowest screening rate. So in the 30 or 40% screening rate mm. compared to some place like the VA where we see screening rates of 80%. So we do a really good job of screening for colon cancer among our veterans. They probably have a good way to reach all those people. They exactly. probably have communication lines to them. And it has to do with the way that the health system is designed and the connectedness. Um, for example, if you're a veteran and you receive the care in the VA, all of your providers in the VA, there's communication mm-hmm. between those providers. Yeah. We see the veterans very regularly and the federally qualified health systems the patients might come in every once in a while they might be changing providers very frequently because they have unstable living um, environment in general so it's harder to keep uh, those patients up to date with their preventive services no addresses for some of them exactly and so we focus on those patients and we do all types of work. Some of the work is directly with the health centers to make sure that they have systems in place so that when patients do appear, they make sure they offer screening. Other work we do is in the community because you have to realize that not everyone sees their doctor. So if you're not walking into a clinic to get care, we have to find you another way to share information with you about colon cancer screenings. How do we reach the people that yeah. don't come in to see their doctor? It's challenging. And What our group is focused on is engaging in several types of awareness events throughout the city. So we have partnered with the federally qualified health centers to do work in the clinic, but also finding ways to to communicate and to reach their populations that don't necessarily come in for a doctor's appointment. So we've had several, in the month of March, last month, we had several events throughout the city to raise awareness about colon cancer screening because it was Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And some of the interactions I had with people were pretty profound. We had individuals that we literally stopped on the street and said, hi, how old are you? Are you over 50? Have you been screened? And some of them said, yes, I've been screened. And it was a celebration. Others had no idea what we've talked about, what we were talking about. Uh, In particular, some people aren't even quite sure what their colon is. So we have to explain what their colon is, what the function of the colon is. Uh, We have to explain that there is a predisposition for developing cancer. Mm -hmm. And then we help them find places that they can go to receive care. Now, uh, it's funny because sometimes people are very warm and receptive to talking about it. And then other times, anytime we mention anything that has to do with the butt or stool or feces... They don't want to hear about it anymore. Ew, so I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> there is definitely an ick factor. Yeah. And what I have really been trying to promote in general with the work that I do is that we need to get over the ick factor mm-hmm. because colon cancer is killing people. And if you can take five minutes being comfortable talking about your poop 
and your stool and your anus and your rectum. You might actually save yourself, your life. You might actually save the life of a family member if you yeah. can go home and share that information. So we try to get rid of, we try to overcome the ick factor and we try to make it comfortable and an open space to talk about colon cancer risk just to make sure that people understand the importance of getting screened. Well, we're going to make sure that everybody who listens to this show gets over the ick factor. That's our yes, goal here. <laughs> I love that goal. So thank you so much for taking all this time to explain everything to us. Thank you. Thank you for coming to Meet the Doctors. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to healthcare researcher Dr. Fola May, whose May Laboratory is on the UCLA campus in Westwood. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode as we speak with the brightest minds in medicine, research, surgery, and much, much more. I'm Linda Huey. You can tweet to me on Twitter at Linda Huey. That's L-Y-N-D-A-H-U-E-Y. Say hi or tell me who you'd like to hear on Meet the Doctors. Thanks to production assistant James Cowan and to Tom Struther for audio post-production.